Today on the Pocket Mastermind podcast, my guest is marine biologist turned sales success consultant and coach, uh, host of the Sales Experience podcast, and author of the soon-to-be-released book, Selling with Authentic Persuasion. Uh, Jason Cutter, welcome to the Pocket Mastermind podcast. David, thanks for having me. I'm super excited to uh, to be here and uh, chat about sales, business, life, wherever we go with this. Yeah, yeah. I said before we started recording, I've looking, look, been looking forward to this conversation because uh, the story of going from marine biologist to sales is like a massive juxtaposition. And I think, uh, you know, the, the, the whole career switch thing is a, a hot topic for a lot of people, right? A lot of people end up in a role or, a, or in a career that for whatever reason they decide, I don't really want to do this, but oh my God, I'm stuck doing it. So it'd be good to hear about your journey that got you to the point where you decided to change like what was how did you end up in marine biology in the first place and then what was it that made you switch well for me i had uh in school i had a very cool teacher it was a general biology class it was a you know middle school junior high school we call it um really cool there was a section of the class where we were looking at fish and studying fish and and at that point, because I'm a little bit older, uh, you know, than some people who might be out there listening, uh, Shark Week had was just coming out. Shark Week was a new thing on TV, and we I would used to record it on VHS tape so I could watch it throughout the year. Um, and uh, I just really got into sharks. I mean, I went from my kind of childhood dinosaur phase into sharks and thought, okay, this is cool. I could do this. I didn't even at that point when I was finishing high school. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I just knew that. The expectation was for me to go to college. Nobody in my family had ever been to college. I would be the first one in all of my family, like not just parents, but like extended family. And, um, and so there was a lot of movement towards that. And so I landed on marine biology. I'm like, let me go do this. And it was something I was interested in, but I also tell you from a self-awareness standpoint, not something I was passionate about or knew where I wanted to come out the other end. Mm-hmm. And I talked to a lot of people like that where they have a degree and maybe I'm interviewing them and it's like, okay, what did you want to do with your degree? Well, I don't know. Like I, I didn't really have a plan. I just did it. Right. And so there's a lot of people who do that trend where they get the degree, check the box, some of it's a good exercise in just finishing something, right? There's some value in going to school, learning how to learn, you know, going through the process and then actually completing something instead of dropping out. Um, but for me, I finished and I, you know, was doing, I was tagging sharks. I was working with an organization. I was doing actually a lot of research and activity. And then I couldn't get a job even within marine biology to take it a step further. Uh, and basically it required a master's degree. And I was like, I don't know if I really want to do this. I don't know if that's what I want to do. And so, you know, I, I pivoted from there. I think that's where quite a few people end up going down the, down the rabbit hole, right? Particularly because, oh, now you need a master's. Now you need this. And before, mm-hmm. you, before you know it, you're so far in. And, you know, education is expensive all the way around the world now. But in the U.S., I know it's astronomically expensive. So yeah. By the time you're a master's, you probably, what, 150, I mean, nowadays. In Depending on where you're going for both the bachelor's and the, the master's. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it could be a lot of money. And then there's that kind of sunk cost feeling of, well, I've invested so much time and money. I should do this and I should stick with it. It's like chasing the casino, isn't it? Like, you know it is, man. The next hand, right? Like, yeah, I've got yeah, so much I'm money. Already I've, down, I've already down. Yeah, I've got to, I've got to chase this thing. So Exactly. What what was it that made? How did you end up making the transition to sales specifically? What was what was that route? Well, the the next step after marine biology was that I moved to Seattle, and I thought um, so. A little bit background on me is. I uh, grew up as a shy, awkward, only child, late bloomer. My parents, which they're fantastic parents, but they were analytical. My mom was a banker before she retired. My dad was an engineer before he retired and they moved up in their organizations. But it's like an analytical, anti-sales kind of household, right? So that's kind of what I grew up in. And then, you know, so I basically always tried to stay away from people. Uh, that's why I was gravitating towards marine biology, right? Sharks are way safer. <laughs> and people joke all the time. It's like, well, I deal with sharks now as sales people, but you know, sharks in the water, they have one direction, you know what they're going to do, you know what to expect, right? They're much safer than humans sometimes. Um, And and so, uh, you know, I I avoided 
public roles, like working with customers, working with people for a long time. I worked in a restaurant and I didn't even want to wait tables. You know, I'd rather work in the back because I didn't want to deal with people. Um, and then I moved to Seattle. I got a job at Microsoft doing tech support because I thought, okay, well, I'm getting okay with people. I can solve problems. I like computers and technology. And so maybe I'll blend those together. Did that for two years, found out I did not want to do that either. And that, um, you know, that wasn't what I was passionate about. What did you take from that role? Did you find anything? Did you, what did you learn during that role that potentially you were able to then carry forwards? You know, the, the biggest thing is being able to help people solve problems, mm -hmm. come up with solutions, and then also communicating at a really skilled level when it comes to providing steps or providing solutions and walking people forward with things, right? So we were the last group um, to work in tech support at Microsoft before they outsourced it overseas. Like literally we helped train and then got our jobs replaced by people in uh, you know, China and India and the Philippines. Like that wasn't a thing back then. And then it became a thing, which was fine with me because I was done. Um, but, you know, I would do phone call tech support. We would do email tech support. And then we did chat tech support. And when you're emailing somebody steps to fix their computer or their software, their problem, you have to be very skilled at communicating the steps and thinking down to like almost stupid proofing the instructions mm -hmm. so that they can do it because you don't know who you're talking to on the other end. Um, and that's really played a, a big role, especially from an operational standpoint. The way my brain works is to communicate, like make this step or make this process. Anybody can do it. And, uh, and even now there's so many bad chat tech support. <laughs> do you know yeah. I mean? How often do you go onto one of those things and go help? And then they say, Oh, you just need to do this. And you think, what the hell is that thing you're talking about? So exactly. it, is a, it, is a, it is an important skill. And I think, you know, even in that role that you didn't particularly enjoy, I think it's, it's important to, that, you know, in any role you can learn something and take that forward, right? So you were able to actually extract something even from that role that you realized wasn't going to be for you. So where did you go next? So next was actually my first official sales role. So from there that ended, I was looking for a job. I still didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. I still didn't know for a long time after that either, but uh, I didn't know what I wanted. And um, a family friend said, hey. <laughs> yeah, a family friend was like, hey, there's a, a guy, he's uh, got a mortgage company. He's looking to grow. You could do that you know, and I didn't really see it as sales because I wasn't thinking in that term. And I just really didn't understand a lot about that world. Um, it also didn't take much sales because this was during the housing boom in the US. And so it was really easy. You didn't have to really sell give it, anything. Give it away Everyone just wants yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's it, right? I mean, it was, it was more of a process operation role than actually a sales role. I still screwed up a lot of sales stuff in it that I, you know, uh, use those lessons to till today and, and still teach people what not to do based on what I screwed up. Um, but yeah, so that's when, you know, at 27 years old, I was in my first sales role. Like most people just, I wouldn't say accidentally, but just unintentionally, mm -hmm. you know, just trying to figure out the world and okay, what should I do next? And what was that like then you went, when you first went into that environment? Like you say, it wasn't like salesy, salesy, but what were the first things that you kind of really noticed when you went into that environment? Um, you know, the, the first thing that I noticed is that I felt like a hypocrite at first because I was renting and I'm helping people buy houses. And I'm like, wait a second, this doesn't feel correct, right? Like, hey, you should do this, but I'm not doing this. So actually the first one that I did was for That's myself and buying a house. Because I, you know, I, I always think like, even if, if you can be a customer of whatever you're selling, that's always the ultimate, right? Because then you believe it enough and you can speak and sell from a place of like, I believe it. I actually own like these knives. Like that's, yeah. I'm selling you these knives because I own these knives. Um, and if you can't at least be in a situation where you can understand or relate to it. But that was one of the things, you know, just being in alignment, you know, helping other people from a place of like, I get it. Like I've been through the process. I know what it's like. I'm going to help you do it correctly because I know what it's like either wrong or in my own experience. So that was huge. Um, and then, you know, just like really it was the listening and asking questions and moving more towards diagnosing and prescribing people's um, situations and helping them um, instead of just tell them telling me what they think they should get instead telling them like, okay, so here's the, here's the big menu, but here's what you should be doing. So uh, under, getting to understand 
a customer, right? which is a massive step where so many salespeople fall down. It's like, here's my agenda. I'm going to project it onto you and eventually it will stick to some people rather than listening to what the customer is actually saying and what their needs actually are. Um, and it's interesting you you were talking about um, that that initial transition because it's quite a big it's quite a big jump, isn't it? Right to go into that yeah. kind of set and also to not be uh, not be a customer of the products that you're you're selling, which is so often the case, right? But you look mm-hmm. at so many, particularly in that kind of market, mortgages and investments and all of that kind of stuff. There's so many people out there selling you all of these products that never used in their life. And it's really, I think it's important to kind of find when you're looking around for products and, 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 that, and services is try and find people that do have the real life experience because they're going to be listening to you from a, a position of where you're coming from, an empathetic point of view. So I think it's great advice for any budding salespeople is, try and get into an industry, at least when you're starting, that potentially you could be an owner of the product, right? Because if you're 22, you're not going to be an owner of a Lamborghini most of the time, right? Right. <laughs> so right. Like- and, and, and I think that's important, right? I mean, you see that a lot, let's say financial planners, investment, you know, mm-hmm. people who are helping people with their investments. And it's tough because I've seen that all the time where they're in their own head, there's a battle because it's like, hey, I'm going to help you invest your million dollars. And then the question comes up, it's like, well, what are, what are you doing about your investments? What do you have? I don't have any, like I'm, I need to make money from you and then I can invest it. And so there's that balance. And sometimes Sometimes you just have to roll with it and be confident and have a team behind you, right? Because you know the company is solid and you know you're helping people yeah. even if you're not a customer of it, right? Like, like you said, um, probably very few Lamborghini salespeople own Lamborghinis because uh, that's a different bracket. It's a different person. But then at the same time, you know, the, what I see if we go smaller with that is you know, somebody that works selling Fords and they drive a Honda and it's like, well, how can you tell me to buy a Ford when you don't even own a Ford? And I've even seen some car dealerships where if they hire you as a salesperson, the first thing you have to do is buy or lease one of their brand's cars and have it. Like that's a requirement. If you're going to work at this Honda dealership, you have to buy or lease a Honda um, so that you're a customer of it. Yeah, I I sold cars years ago and and they gave us a pool car so that at least you were driving around and funnily enough it was ford <laughs> so we were driving around in ford so that uh, otherwise it looked ridiculous when you turn up to yeah. work and leave work and you're in a different branded car right so mm-hmm. yeah it makes but one thing i'm interested in is like so when you talked about being the shy kid at when you were at school and i was i was very much the same how did you find that when you first went into sales because then you'll go massively out of your comfort zone. Yeah. So, you know, a bunch of experiences before then had kind of warmed me up. So, um, like I said, when I was in college, I had my first kind of like public facing job where I worked at a restaurant and I didn't want to wait tables because again, I didn't want to deal with people. So I was bussing tables. Like I was cleaning tables because that's safe, right? Okay. I can just fill waters and take plates, but I don't have to deal with anybody. Like there's no pressure. And then of course they moved me up and I agreed and I was like, okay, I think I can do that. And then I did it really well for years. And I actually really enjoyed it. And it's funny too, right now, if I look back, if I were to go back to being a server in a restaurant now, knowing what I know about sales and persuasion and customer service and not manipulation, but just like helping people get what they want and have a great experience, I'd be so fun to wait tables now. I just know I would crush it and everyone would be way happier than, you know, they even were before because there's, and if you ever dine with a professional server. Mm-hmm. There's a different way they handle it. And they're not just upselling you appetizers because they want you to spend more. Like they're making professional suggestions and they're trying to help you have this experience. So anyway, uh, yeah. So I, you know, waited tables and then I did the two years at Microsoft doing tech support. And then that was kind of like warming me up to dealing with people and interacting and asking questions and just kind of get comfortable. And then, you know, I was working for someone in the mortgage business. So it was like, okay, here's your first part. Answer the phone ask these questions, felt this information, and then we'll get to phase two. And then watch me do what I do and take notes, and then we'll get to phase three. And so it was kind of an evolution learning it, and then you know the training wheels came off. And so were most of those conversations, were they uh, telephone 
No, actually, this was all face to face. So in fact, the directive was as soon as somebody calls in, get them, you know, get in front of them face to face as quickly as possible. So you can build the relationship, build rapport, build trust, you know, read their body language, all of those classic things. In the beginning, don't do anything over the phone until you've, you've got a solid relationship. Because that's the big change, isn't it? Because you can kind of hide behind the phone. If you're doing telesales, you've kind of got a little bit of a defense because they can't see you. So you cock it up, you go a bit red, it's it's all right. And then suddenly you, you're now in front of people. And if you're not 100% confident, I think that's where, you know, my experience when I was in sales and people around me in sales, they're not 100% confident. They're in front of people. They start to start to clam up. So what was that? What was that like for you? How did you start to build your confidence? Um, you know, more conversations. I, I can't remember specifically what it was like. I probably blocked it out, but I'm sure it was really nervous and a lot of pressure uh, and a lot of sweating and, uh, you know, in person or over the phone. Um, you know, some of it's just the pressure and the nervousness and helping people at that point get into the largest debt of their life, right? Like, okay, you're going to get $500,000 in loans to buy a house. Like that's a lot of pressure and don't screw that up, right? It's like, you know, food, shelter, and safety. Those are like the main things that humans need. And, you know, I'm, I'm messing with people's shelter. And so there's, you know, there's that pressure, but it, it's just doing it over and over again, repetition, the confidence, um, and then later on in life, what I realized is not, not nervousness and just being bad at it, but there's some level of just if you're nervous and or you're just kind of, uh, you're just a human having a conversation and not perfect and not polished and not like, you know, super slick. There's a part of that that's actually more beneficial because perfect, slick, smooth will actually trigger people's brains to wonder like, what's the catch? Are they trying to rip me off? Or what are they trying to do to me? Because we're, we're conditioned to be worried about the super slick person, like the salesperson. Yeah. And so if you're not perfect, if you have some flaws or if you just kind of stumble or you mess something up, people actually will appreciate that because it means, okay, this person, it, fundamentally, this person is kind of a mess, has good intentions, seems like a nice person, seems like they really want to help, and, you know, they're probably not trying to rip me off because they just seem like a human. I think that's a good message for anybody because you're going you're gonna to get more confident with the conversation as time goes on anyway. But you're right. You don't want to be slick Rick and absolutely because mm -hmm. it, it, everyone smells that. They're like, oh, this, this is too, way too smooth, way too smooth. And it does need to be. And the other thing you said there, like having a human conversation, the interesting thing is, most of us are selling something all, all day, right? Whether, you know, in our relationships, in, whether we're even the customer, we're still selling in some way. But suddenly when you get put into a sales environment, a specific, like, now you've got to sell this, everyone comes up. <laughs> it's like, shit, it's like going on stage, right? And, and yeah. um, it's good to remember that it is a human conversation and try and, I think it's, I think what happens is a defensive mechanism. We tend to, talk at the customer rather than actually using the power to ask the questions right and then you don't have to say half as much <laughs> that's one tactic it, it, that I used to. It, exactly and I, and I think that's important and that's the one thing people ask me all the time is like you know what questions should I ask what should I do it doesn't matter just ask more questions talk less it's another human here's the fundamental thing I tell everyone and this is important for for anyone in sales and and I deal with a lot of people who in sales, accidentally, kind of like I was, right? It wasn't their lifelong goal. They didn't wake up. They weren't a three-year-old playing, you know, lemonade stand in their, in their bedroom selling stuff. Some people do. And, and then those people go on to sales. Most other people fall into sales, right? They accidentally end up in sales because maybe they don't have another option or they don't know where they're going in life. And so I deal with a lot of people who are in there and they're just like, how do I do this? And I'm worried about doing it the proper way. The fundamental thing to keep in mind is, is what you said it's just another human, right? It's another person. Remember that just like a conversation with anyone else. The other thing to always remember, and this things, this things a little bit hurts a little bit. Nobody cares about you. Literally nobody cares about you. They don't care about your feelings. They don't care about, they don't care about your company. They don't care about your awards. They don't care about your feedback, your surveys, your testimonials. They want some of that, but they don't care. They care about what are you going to do for them? Like what's in it for me? That's all they care about. 
And how is this going to help me? And so, like you said, like the, the monologues and the talking at them and just like vomiting all over them and just kind of saying a lot and hoping it convinces them, you don't have to do that. And, and some salespeople, like they're worried they don't want to do that. That's perfect. Don't. Just ask more questions. And how did you, how long was it before you really started to feel that you were getting good at this, this role, that getting good at sales? What was, what was it that kind of, stood out to you? We, we, did you realize that you were performing better than others around or? So I did a couple of years in the mortgage business. Then I went from there to help people who were in foreclosure, who were uh, under threat of losing their homes, like in the States, like to an auction where the auction happens on a Friday, then the sheriff comes and then they have to leave their house. And you know, that terrible scenario you can imagine. So I was helping people with that. And this was before the housing crisis and before like everything started right, to fall right. apart, people were still in foreclosure and it what and that was okay. And I did well and was helping some people and you know, it's a sales, you wouldn't think it would be a sales thing. Like somebody's about to lose their home. You think that would be an easy sale, but it's not because people are stuck in their head and they like their house or they like, they, they think, you know, there's always an option, even if there isn't right, because mm-hmm. maybe they're not working anymore. So there's really no way, you know, you've got to do what you can to preserve it. And it wasn't until another job where I switched from face-to-face to to over the phone, managing a company where we were helping people in foreclosure and doing it at a bigger scale. And I was running teams where the stuff I was able to do over the phone to help people move forward and like agree to, let's say, sell their house or to sign up for some kind of program, stuff that I thought you couldn't do over the phone, we started doing and I was doing and, and leading a team. That's when I was like, yeah, I think I, I think I got this. Like, I think I figured it out. And uh, so, what was it, what was it about that role then that kind of you, you really that that you learned that you that you were able to do this? What was the, what was the tangible skills that you think you really were able to employ? Um, just at a deep, deep level, setting up a process where it's taking someone through the conversation. And it was many calls. It was like structured many calls, like just of discovery, but uncovering their situation, uncovering their needs, and then building the facts around it, and then giving them a customized diagnosis and prescription right? That says, okay, based on your situation, here's the facts. And then based on that and what you told me and your goals, here's what we need to do. And this is what we should do. And then just stepping into the role of being a professional who's going to guide them forward. Where'd you move from there? Um, So from there, I went to a different company helping people with credit card debt. So we um, had programs through credit counseling, you know, people again in financial situations. And uh, that was interesting because I'd never done that before. I'd Mm -hmm. never sold that. I'd never, you know, been involved in that industry. I was hired as a manager and they said, okay, before you can have a team, you need to figure out how to do it yourself. Um, And so here's the phone. So you know, make some sales and then write a script and then you can hire people and then build it from there. And so that was interesting because it was like sitting in a cubicle making sales, even though I was, you know, supposed to be a manager. Uh, And I firmly believe, you know, if you're going to lead anybody, you should, you know, have some understanding of what it takes to do that. Definitely. Definitely. That's, that's where a lot of organizations absolutely fall down, right? You've got big sales organizations, big call centers, the guys that are the C-suite of those organizations have hardly ever set foot in there. They don't really understand the challenges that the guys on the front line are facing. They don't necessarily understand the skill sets that are on, on the front line. And I think if you are leading those organizations, you really got to spend some time and it might not sound glamorous, but go and listen to what's actually going on because you got to, there's no other way of knowing where the skill gaps are or where the, the issue gaps are. No, and that's, that's totally true, David. And, and the big thing that I see, and this might upset any sales managers who are listening to this, um, is that generally what happens is sales reps, usually good sales reps who also want to lead, they move up to sales manager, right? Yeah. They weren't raised as a manager. They probably haven't been given any management training. They don't, you know, they're, they're, they're a salesperson who now is, is higher up. 
what happens is they generally are really good at sales. So then they sell up the chain and sell everybody on why it's not their fault, why the team is, it's not their fault. Maybe it's the leads, right? They need better leads Mm -hmm. and it's it's never sales. And the challenge is like you're saying, if there's a disconnect in the C-suite or, you know, the VP level doesn't have an understanding, hasn't done it before, doesn't have enough of an understanding from time on the floor, they're going to buy what the sales manager is selling. And then the organization is always going to be challenged because instead of them making an informed decision, they're just buying the story. And then, you know, it's tough to to change from there and succeed. I've I've seen it over and over again, and particularly with outsourced contact centers, because you've then got extra incentive for the real issue to be hidden, right? So you've got the, like you said, the guy who gets promoted into the role, probably hasn't been given the training, uh, who is then protected, they're protecting themselves against their team performance to their leadership. The leadership is then protecting themselves to the organization that's effectively hired them in as as the outsource. So the the truth never makes its way through. And And I think so many organizations underperform thinking they're at terminal velocity because that's what they're getting told. This is this is our conversion rate. This is this is as good as we can get. I've been into those organizations and it's not true <laughs> on many occasions, but, right? Yeah, and I'll and I'll tell you it's funny because um when I worked at a company a long time ago, the one where I switched to the phone sales, I didn't want to be in sales. So funny. I was doing some sales beforehand. I got hired on that company as an operations director. Like I didn't want to do sales. They already had their, their VP of sales. So I was kind of like the VP of operations and they were having a conversion issue and they were having a sales issue. And the VP of sales solution was, well, do twice as much marketing and then we can close twice as many deals. And the owner's like, no, (laughs) no, close more deals. Like this is on it. Like it was, it was obviously unacceptable, right? Sometimes CEOs are like unreasonable and they want like twice as much. They want blood from a stone. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's like the metrics are unacceptable. And so that's what happened. He said, do twice as much marketing. And then he got fired. And then I was then moved over and then I got to do it. And uh, which was interesting, but it wasn't my plan. But yeah, I see that all the time. And, And I think too, I think it's also important to understand sales managers, a good sales manager is an advocate for the salespeople and they're the ones helping them in the trenches. They're helping them close deals. They're motivating. Like that's a special skill and a special energy and it's super important. You can't have a very tasky, like, like executive level sales manager because then the salespeople won't respond to it. So you've got to have that sales manager buffer there of the right person and the leaders above them need to look at the numbers objectively and be careful not getting sold on the story and then making sure everyone's working together. And that's where getting close to it really comes in because you can, by getting close, you'll know whether the metrics are, are bullshit or not, right? You, you say, yeah. Well, 5% conversion, 10%, whatever it is, you'll get, un- you'll get an understanding of where they're dropping up. You only got to listen to a day's worth of calls and maximum, yeah. right? And you'll know how many were lost just purely down to the skill gap Um, and then you know where to invest and I think one of the challenges for organizations is investing the time and the money into the frontline sales because it's always offline time and it costs so much money and but how much is it costing you with the poor conversion rate and so obviously now you work in you're now doing consultancy and coaching how do you are you working going into organizations and and helping them better understand where their opportunities lie within the sales functions. Yeah, because there's so many things that go into a successful sale that even as, because I've been, you know, VP of sales, I've been VP of sales of marketing. I've dealt with it in many organizations myself and I know what that's like in it. When you're in it and you're looking at it and there's pressure from above, pressure from below and it's just this whole combination. Um, And then, you know, to be an outside third party person, kind of look at it at this, you know, unattached view. Um, You know, I use the analogy of an iceberg all the time because if you look at an iceberg, most people know what you see above the surface is, you know, five to 10%. That's just the little tip of the iceberg. The rest of it's down below. Like we've all seen that image, um, you know, that drawing, uh, if you will. And so for me, the part that you see above 
the surface of the water in sales is the closed deal. It's the, you know, the high five, it's the ringing the bell, it's the put the mark on the whiteboard, you know, it's the commission check, like that's what you see. And then below the surface is everything that has to go right in order to do that consistently at a high level and scalably, right? Like you can get lucky every once in a while. Like anybody can close a deal every once in a while, like that happens, but to do it consistently and at a high level takes marketing, it takes technology, it takes culture, it takes training, recruiting, HR, like all of these factors that, you know, what, what I'll do is go into organization and the first thing is we'll just do an analysis and see, okay, where do you want to be? Where are you at now? And then let me do a deep dive and figure out what are we missing on the team? What, what do we need to, to fix or replace or improve, bring in? And then, you know, how do we get you to your goal long-term? And do you see common patterns within organizations that you can then resolve? Yeah. I mean, you know, generally it comes down to training. There's, there's a couple of things. One is the, is the training, the coaching and the leadership side. Um, it's, it's, really coaching them on the field and giving them the training. And a lot of organizations that I work with, they're just overwhelmed. There's maybe smaller organizations. There's an owner, there's a sales team. The owner's trying to run the company. The sales team, they need a lot of help. A lot of people think, okay, I'm going to hire sales reps and I'll just let them sell because they know what they're doing. It's tough. They still need it. That's why if you watch professional sports, there's always a team of coaches on yeah. the sideline in the game. Like, of course, they're trusting their players. You guys go play, but we've got to make coaching decisions throughout the game, right? I can't get out there and, and kick the ball myself, but I've got to like coach you guys That's on great. how to do this and, and you women and, and, and the team. And so it's the same thing in sales. Like you can have really professional people, but they still need coaches on the field with them all the time. Um, and, you know, a lot of organizations aren't putting enough effort into it. So it's, it's literally listening to calls and being like, you said this word, you could have said this word and you would have closed this deal and catching those things. So there's a lot of that. And then a lot of it's the marketing. I mean, I see a lot of companies not knowing where to go with marketing, not thinking, you know, what the best strategy is, or they think, okay, well, everyone says cold calls. So let's just do lots of cold calls and hope that works. And it can work, but it's a tough strategy. You have to have the right people and the right data and the right technology. Um, you know, I work with a lot of companies who are taking inbound leads, you know, they're working towards that. And so they're buying leads or they're doing direct mail or doing, you know, digital advertising. Mm -hmm. And then what happens is each one of those phone calls is very expensive, right? It's a $50, $80 phone call. Yeah. And so then there's a different pressure on closing deals. And you see, you know, the, the approach to, especially telesales now is probably changing quite a lot. There's a lot of particularly, you know, outbound telesales. There's not many people want to give a pick up the phone in the first place. Right? I'd imagine the contact rate is probably way down from where it used to be uh, sometime before, particularly, you know, before cell phones, mobile phones, but you could screen them a lot. Now you can screen a lot. Right. Easier. But also because of the fraud aspect that goes on right so you know when i get a call they say well can you confirm your details like hang on you called me <laughs> exactly I, I do that same thing it's like you, you how do you distinguish between the fishing so i think you know the sales organization organizations are trying to feel their way through that that change how do they make those functions really effective have you have you seen that for yourself and on the front line recently yeah. So, you know, uh, people who are calling into businesses, that's a little bit different um, where they're, you know, somebody's going to answer that business line or they can leave a voicemail instead of an individual who's going to yeah. screen it. I mean, my cell phone even just says spam risk because it's identifying it as a spam and I just don't answer it. Like yeah, that person, I'm, yeah. I'm never talking to that one. Um, and I'll tell you in general, like if I don't know who it is or I'm not expecting it, I don't answer it. Um, you know, even let's say my, like my parents, I talk to them, you know, regularly and, you know, my mom calls, I'm, I'm assuming it's an emergency. Otherwise she'll literally text me to coordinate when we're going to talk, right? Like, because they're busy, I'm busy. And so that's just the way the world is. Like before yeah. you used to, anytime the phone rang, you'd be excited because this is probably good news. Just like you, you know, you, at one point in your life, you probably check the mail every day because you're excited about what might be in the mail 
or your email and now you're like, oh, man, this yeah. crap, right? Like now <laughs> there was a time when I was a kid when anybody came to the door, it was exciting because it was like, you know, you might not have, you didn't have phones. You had, you had phones, but not cell phones. True, and so yeah. it was like a neighborhood kid, like, hey, can you come play? Like that, that's cool when someone knocks on the door. Now it's like, okay, what are you trying to sell me? Who is this? Yeah. Um, you know, um, and so you, with calling companies, that's one thing. Calling individuals. I mean, the biggest thing I do is I do what I can with my clients to shift towards inbound strategies. Instead of trying to cold call you and say, hey, David, um, I think you have this problem. Do you have this problem? Do you need to buy this? Do you need this help? Like, let me ask you a bunch of questions and see if I can help you. Like, I don't know. And that's just shooting at the dark. And that's leads to burnout. It leads to issues. It leads to just a lot of wasted time. I would rather do whatever I can with a company to have you, when you know you need some help, go, okay, where can I find help? Oh, here's this company. You know, let me fill out their form or let me call them. And then it's a different conversation and it's obviously more expensive, but it's more valuable and it's a better way to start a relationship just in general. And, um, you know, a lot of it is that. And I think because people can go online and they can do a chat, like, hey, I need help. I want to chat or I want to do SMS. I want to do email. I want to do phone calls. You just got to meet them where the customer wants to talk. Um, but, you know, do your most to let them start the conversation. And that's really knowing the knowing the customer in the first place, isn't it? Where where do they, where are they hiding? Where do they hang out? Uh, and communicate with them in 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 that medium now, because I think, like you say, times have changed massively. It used to be everything was just on the phone, but organisations now have to evolve to communicate via digital methods, um, but then make it easy because lots of people still want to have that voice conversation. I do personally, you know, you want, particularly if you've got a problem, you want to speak to a human and say, Hey, exactly. how do I fix this? But you've got to make that, that's, that's the, you've got to make that easy for them because many places deliberately make it difficult now and it becomes frustrating. Yeah. And there's a lot of cool technology I'm helping companies implement uh, a lot of service providers out there, but you know, literally someone fills out a form on a website and says, Hey, I, I want help. Right. I, you know, not a problem, but like, I want to buy something. So I want to check out what you have to sell. And so then they'll get a text back and say, Hey, you know, we got the form. When would you like to talk? And it's all automated. It's all AI. It's bots going back and forth in a conversational, like intelligent way. When do you want to talk? Can you do three o'clock tomorrow? I can do two o'clock. Okay. That sounds good. We'll call you at two o'clock, right? They're texting back and forth, setting up that appointment for when they're ready. Instead of like that call instantly, which is like, Hey, you filled out a form. Do you want to talk now? No, I don't, but I filled out the form. And then what happens is the technology at two o'clock tomorrow will actually call the person and call the sales rep and join the call together. So no one has to think about it. And then they can have that conversation when everyone is ready. The world has moved on quite some way, hasn't it? <laughs> it's so crazy. It's so crazy. And, and it helps because there's so much noise, right? Like, you know, running banner ads or running ads on Facebook. Everyone sees those ads and they just scroll by. So you've got to do different things to get people's attention in the right way so that uh, you can help them. So how did all this then start to come together and form the basis of the book? Because I'm interested in, the, in, in where that idea came from. Yeah, so as a awkward kid with a marine biology degree with a very wessy, a messy, windy path through life, you know, that, that I struggled with in my head a lot because I was like, I didn't do the formula. You know, I didn't do the American formula of go to college, get a degree, get a job, start a family, buy a house, like go through this like linear path. Um, but I, I spent some time looking backwards. And I said, what have I trained salespeople on? What have I done to be successful? and not in a like natural born salesperson way and not in a manipulation way and not in a like, let me teach you these closing lines and tactics. Like there's people out there who write books for tactical stuff. Like here's what to say and here's how to control people. Instead, it's just like, okay, what's, what's the mindset? What have I done? What have I taught others? What do I know works really well that applies to anything that you're selling? Um, and like you said earlier, like everything in life is sales. And so like, how do you apply that anywhere? Uh, and I just put that framework together and just started writing and, and here we are. So talk, talk us a bit through the book. What is it? How does it, how does it, how's it structured? What's it covering? So the title again is selling with authentic persuasion. And there's three sections of the book. The first one is the authenticity piece. And that's about self-awareness. It's about where our fears come in from a sales side, where that's limiting us, where it challenges us. 
focusing on your strengths, and then also the traits that I've seen that successful salespeople have that can be learned, right? There's, you know, obviously you got to be able to communicate and you got to be able to talk to people. And if you're a pure introvert, sales is always going to be hard for you. But there's some traits like curiosity and, and persistence and these things that you can learn. If you don't have them at a high level, you can develop them, right? I'm all about making someone into a salesperson, not assuming that you either are or are not, but that you can become one, right? Like you can become better at sports or working out or anything you want. Like I view sales the same way. Um, you know, there's people who are going to perform at a top level and they're just born for it and they have the perfect combination. They're the, you know, they're, they're the, they're the LeBron James, Michael Jordans of the world and they've got it and they work really hard, you know, 18 hours a day for 20 years and they've got it. And then there's people who can do really well. And so the authenticity piece is about that and then why you want to sell and, and getting in touch with that because sales is full of rejection. Sales is tough. And so you have to have that foundation in your head first if you want to have any shot at it. Otherwise, you're going to fail out and you're, you're going to struggle. And then the second section of the book is about the persuasion piece. And it's about a framework to use that applies anywhere and, and, you know, the process to follow and how to do it like a professional. It's about persuading people for the right reasons to help them with their situation. Understanding that, you know, it, it, this is the one thing everyone just needs to, to, to always remember is you getting your prospective customer to buy means they have to make a change. If it didn't require them making a change, they would have already bought it already. They would have just buy the same thing. It's why people buy the same uh, paper towels or the same toilet paper or the same soap because they don't want change. They like what they like. Mm -hmm. And so if you're selling something, that means they have to make a change. Our primitive parts of our brain wants to keep us safe in our comfort zone, protect our ego, keep us alive. And so change equals danger, danger equals death, buying from you equals death. And so that's what you get to overcome as a salesperson. And so persuasion is about helping people overcome that in the right way for the right reasons, but as a professional. Um, and then the third part I call the intangibles. And those are the little things that make the huge difference in performing like a professional at the top of your game, no matter what you're doing. Um, in sports, it's the hustle plays. It's the things that don't show up on the scoreboard or on the stats, but make the difference when you're playing against a professional opponent. And in sales, you're playing against your prospect who their brain again is in survival mode and has been around for thousands of years trying to stay safe and you're playing against a very experienced opponent who does not want to buy and take a risk and so you have to do some intangibles right and when you combine those three parts that i have in the book and apply that to anything in sales then you're playing at a completely different level if you could summarize i don't know three or five key points i think you've already pulled out one of giving yourself the best chance of success in a sales role sales environment what would they be so i would say on the authentic piece it's it's the having the knowing what your strengths are and knowing what the traits that it takes to be successful like curiosity and openness persistence creativity being authentic you know when you you look at those and you can go all in on those that's important the other big thing and this is like if there's one takeaway it's also knowing why you want to be successful right one of the exercises i do with salespeople whenever they start is i have them make a vision board you know an actual physical vision board for their desk what do they want and why? What are their goals? A vacation, a house, more money in the bank, financial security, a new cell phone, a new car. I don't care. What's going to motivate them when it gets tough, right? Like what are they going to do? And physically make that um, because it will be tough. It's, it's sales. If it was easy, everyone would do it. Um, and then on the, on the persuasion piece, I mean, it's, it's really about embracing yourself as a professional, I know that I'm going to help you because you need it. And I know that if I don't help you, then bad things could happen. Either you go buy from somebody else who doesn't care about you and they rip you off, or you keep going down your current path and then bad things. I mean, when I used to help people in foreclosure, if I wasn't successful, they were going to be homeless, right? And so that's a different pressure on me because now it's not about me, right? Now it's about my duty and responsibility to them. And then I'm talking from a different place and any pressure isn't me manipulating because I want to close the deal. The pressure is me because if I don't, you're screwed. So I better help you. 
and it just shifts the game uh, like crazy. And that's an interesting, it's an important mindset because I think in that scenario, it there are people that may take a slightly different approach, right? Because mm-hmm. these people are vulnerable, desperate, yep. and you've got to, I think it's important to operate with ethics in that, that scenario, right? Because one day it could be any of us. It is. And, and no matter what you're selling, right? So there's, you know, helping people out of debt or helping people who are dealing with substance abuse, like there's bigger, like really actually life things. And then there's maybe you're selling cars. And if I were to sell cars and take that approach, part of it is I see it as my duty to help you buy a car in the right way, the right car with the right setup and, and, and help you out and just give you good service as a salesperson. Because if I don't, you might go down the street and buy from somebody else who might just totally rip you off because they're just looking at the commission check. So it's not always just like, I'm going to save your life, but also I'm going to save you from, and again, I could be selling knives. I want you to have these because of what you want them for. And I don't want you to make a mistake and buy the wrong ones. And that's, it totally changes it. And especially when people say, well, you're just trying to pressure me because you want a commission. No. Like, I don't care. Like I've, I used to tell people that I'm like, when I, if I, if you don't sign up and I get off the phone, we get off the phone. When I go home tonight, I don't have a problem, but you still do. Like I'm doing this for you. Right. And, but I mean it like my intentions are so clean. Like I mean it, I'm helping you. I'm pushing you because I want to help you. That's an interesting mindset. And I think really good takeaway for anybody who's currently in a sales role who maybe they've everyone hits a, a dry spell at some point right uh, mm-hmm. and then you then you really do start to think about you and i think yeah. if you can then use that framing to start to think about the customer what do they want how do they feel then you start to put yourself into their shoes you start to ask questions that you would probably want to be asked um and i think it's it's quite easy i think we get distracted by oh no what question should i ask uh, what what information do you want to know <laughs> and then start from start backwards from there that's it and and what do you need to know what are you trying to get to here here's the biggest thing and this is like a huge takeaway i'm so glad you brought up like the slump and when people like start the biggest thing is most likely they're talking like you said early on they're talking at because they think they know it all and they've done it enough like they i i don't care why you think you need it david like let me tell you why this is important and why this is good and why i'm amazing like just be quiet let me tell you how amazing this is and you just grab your credit card like no that doesn't work right uh on most people And so the first thing to do is if you're in a slump, go back to what you did in the beginning, ask lots of questions, play dumb. Don't assume you know everything about everything and be ultimately curious and ask lots of questions. Number one, as soon as you hit that slump, stop thinking, ask questions, and then look for the problem to solve. And the fundamental question you should always be able to ask is, Why does this person, why does my prospect, why does David need what I'm selling for their reasons? Why does he need it? Why does she need it? If you don't know that, then you're just shooting in the dark and you're hoping they're going to buy. If you know that, then you can solve it. The other, the other, uh, error I would say is I've seen over and over again is just listing, uh, a, a, a menu of all of these benefits that are only benefits if they apply to that person and and even more so right you see it now particularly with technology uh, mm-hmm. and a lot of outsourced contact centers is all of these this how many megapixels the camera's got uh, the refresh rate on screens and doesn't matter doesn't care if, if you try to sell me a camera that way like i literally don't give a crap yeah. like you will lose me in a second because i don't care some people super care i don't it would be terrible. If somebody came at me like that, I know. Just, nope. And it's just a long, long list of all this stuff. It's like, well, find out why the customers called you or walked in in the first place. What's motivated them to initiate that conversation with you? There's your first starting point. And that gets missed so many times that I've seen through, through different sales organizations. 100%. So I've got a few extra questions for you. Um, I've really enjoyed <laughs> this, uh, but they're they're off. They're more off piste and uh, uh, different to the the what's about you, but they are related. So, first one: Do you have a morning routine? Uh, and if you do, what does it look like? 
So I'll give the disclosure, which was I didn't have one for the longest time. I've tried some in the past. Uh, they've never been successful. Um, you know, I've gone back and forth to the, you must have a morning routine and you must not have a morning routine. And so I've not always done it. It's only been recently that I've been working on it. Now my morning routine is I wake up, um, I set the alarm 5.30. Usually I try not to snooze, but I'll lay there and kind of think about stuff and kind of, you know, kind of get warmed up for the day. Then I'll go for a walk for 30 minutes um, just around where I live and kind of get moving, listen to podcasts, listen to audiobooks, get my brain kind of going. And then I'll come back home and I'll journal for a little bit. I've been using this thing called Headspace, which is a meditation, like a, um, you know, a walkthrough kind of app for, for helping with guided meditations. Uh, I might do some reading, then you know, take a shower and then kind of dive into it. And, uh, you know, that's been helpful kind of start the day and kind of warm up in the day instead of diving right into it. Yeah. I've, I'm a bit like you, my morning routine is have gone up and down and various yeah. times. <laughs> and I think you've got to find what works for you. And the reason mm -hmm. I asked this question is that so many people are in a, have the same kind of experience. Like they do have one, they don't have one, it, it changes. And, I think uh, hearing how other people start their day uh, can give ideas to, to anybody else who's thinking, well, maybe I could get more out of the beginning of the day. Um, and, and the thing I would say too, is that for me, it's been an evolution and it's been a, a process of addition. So it didn't start with this whole process. The first thing I was doing was like, I was doing some journaling, but then I was like, okay, I just want to walk and get out of the house first thing in the morning, get moving. So I was just taking a 30 minute walk, coming home and then diving into the day. And then I started doing it earlier and expanding kind of my personal time before starting on work stuff. Um, and so, it, you know, a lot of times I see this, okay, you've got to set up this time, you've got to do all these things. And it becomes this tasky assignment to have a morning routine, which then is not the purpose of you having like this time for yourself in the morning. And so just take it bit by bit, right? Just like a diet, like crash diets usually fail when you go, I'm not going to eat carbs ever again, right? Okay, cool. That's good for a week. And then, you know, you eat a bag of chips and then you're just like off the wagon instead, just like, you know, one thing at a time, right? Just make one change, play the long game. Life is very long. If you could do one thing different for the next like two months, and then add to that, like that, that will literally change the game long-term. Yeah. And I would add to that is if you want to go from waking up at, I don't know, seven, eight, nine to five, five thirty, do it in small increments, right? Go back 15 100%. minutes at a time. Don't rush it because no. you'll do it for the first day and bounce. You, you might, you might, you might just about get your way up, but by the end of the first week, you're snoozing. I can, I can and, and I'll tell you, just like the vision board for sales is the one thing I've learned for myself is why do I want to do it? Yeah. The why, not just because I feel like I should, not because I have to, not just because, you know, some other celebrity or, or entrepreneur or millionaire has their morning routine and yeah. I want to be like them when I grow up. But like, why do I want to do it? Why is that important to me? Same thing, like people who want to get up and then go to the gym and work out and they do it for a couple of days and they fall off. It's like, why? Why would you want to get up in the rain to go to the gym or go for a run? Why does that matter to you? Right? Yeah. Do you want to lose weight? Do you want to feel better? Does it make you feel good about yourself? That's that's if you don't have that, then you're hoping and it's gonna fail. Yeah, you've got to have that strong why. I think it's like some I heard a story about Michael Phelps. I think he only ever missed one five AM training session that was because of a wedding or something and it's not mm -hmm. because of motivation right because this motivation's never motivation's only around when you're sat in the on the in the comfort of your sofa of the evening it's not there at five yeah. in the morning <laughs> so no. you've got to have that reminder to to boost that motivation back up and get mm -hmm. and start to build that discipline in because even though it's beneficial for you, you still you like you touched on earlier. The body wants to the the human in us wants to stay the same. It doesn't want to change, and there has to be a period of adjustment. So, yeah, good advice. Yeah. Um, three books that you'd recommend and why. So this is always a fun thing for me. So I would say um, Love Languages is a super good one, and it's it's always a fun uh, you know recommendation. And it's not just a relationship thing. It's also a business thing. So I think the love languages, the five love languages, that's a really good one if you're not familiar with it. Um, it's super helpful. If you're leading and managing a team, understand this, the five love languages. Basically, it's people, 
there's a certain way they feel loved, right? Whether it's gifts or affirmations or quality right. time. Um, don't treat everyone the same. Don't treat everyone like you like. If you like gifts, don't give everyone gifts because they won't care and then you'll, your feelings will be hurt. So that would be one of them. Um, I'd say also, um, you know, one of the business books that had the biggest impact on me was The E-Myth Revisited by Michael Gerber. Um, it's about why most small businesses fail and how to do that. And, you know, most people start a business because they like doing something, but running a business is about so much more than just making a widget or building websites or whatever it is. And so there's, there's a ton to it. Um, so, and then uh, the other book, you know, it's also a relationship thing, but I think it helps is called Attached. And so that one, and we could talk about so many books, but Attached is a good one too that will help with relationships. Again, personal and business, um, you know, really helps with that. Awesome. Yeah, that's three books I have. Well, I've got The E-Myth is currently on a pile waiting to be read. <laughs> and the other two, are going to join the pile at some point. <laughs> so there you go. The, 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 I, I ask these questions to get good recommendations. The challenge is the book pile keeps building. I, I have that same thing. I have so many books around me that people have been recommending that I've just been buying on the spree that I am. And like, yeah, it's, it, it always happens. But that's right. Uh, three people to follow or listen to. You know, depend, you know, and that's so tough. Same thing with the book thing is usually when people ask me for the best books, I ask them why. Like, what are they looking for? It's my sales process too, right? Like, you know, it's like, why do you want it? What do you want? Like I gave you the book answer, but you know, for the followers, it really depends on what and why. Like, I don't know if I can really answer that because it depends on what you're looking for. If you're in sales, anyone, if you're anyone, in marketing, if you're... Yeah, anyone that's kind of, that you listen to quite a lot. Um, and I guess it's kind of like, why do you listen to them? Yeah, so, you know, for me... In, in my current state, I really like Gary Vee at times, Gary Vaynerchuk. If you're a sales marketing business, um, he has a lot of content. You, know, you got to be careful because he's got so much content. You can procrastinate by listening instead of doing. And so, but he's really good. He's got a good mindset. He gives away everything for free. He doesn't care. He's not trying to sell anybody anything. Um, you know, there's a lot of great content. Uh, I, you know, have become friends with, and he's actually helped me and coached me and mentored me, but Sam Crowley. So if you're in business or you want to start a business or you have something you want to do, Sam Crowley, he runs the every day is Saturday podcast where he's really focused on helping people, you know, get their message out there in the world and turn it into a business and, you know, really, you know, come from that place. So those are, those are two that I can think of. I don't know if I could come up with a third, uh, you know, depending on what you're looking <laughs> breaking for. Breaking the rules. You're breaking the rules. I, <laughs> I'll let you off. Uh, All right. Kind of covered the next one, but we'll, we'll see if there's any additional three good habits or disciplines that you've employed in your life that you feel have made a big difference to you. You know, one of the biggest habits I'd say is grace. I know this sounds like a weird one. It's not what you're looking for, but it's, no, it's exactly the grace and yeah, yeah. The, the, it's the grace and understanding in my own head to understand like, uh, A, I'm human. Uh, B, there's, you know, I'm not going to say there's only so much time in the day because you can get a lot done in the day, but it's a marathon and a sprint, right? Get done with a day like, man, I could have done more. Mm -hmm. Okay, do it tomorrow. Like, that's okay, right? Life is very long, Um Another habit that goes with that is I have my vision board and then I actually have my remembering board, right? I actually like kind of scrapbook digitally and then print them up and put them all over my office, which is what have I done over the last two years, especially in consulting, right? I started with nothing mm -hmm. and here I am now. And it's like, I try to remember because you get so stuck and you're like, man, I feel like I'm not winning or I could be doing more. I could be selling more. I could be making more. I could be doing this. And then I look back and go, oh my gosh, like I've done so much. You don't want to dwell on it, but be like, you got to celebrate it. Like that's yeah, pretty do. amazing. Um, so that's been a big thing too, is like looking forward, also looking back, having the grace. Um, and then, you know, taking breaks throughout the day to just kind of disconnect for a minute, right? And, and step away and kind of regroup, like take that time out throughout the day, take, you know, little timeouts when you can, um, you know, I'll go for walks during the day, you know, working from home, I'll, you know, sit in a different room and just kind of chill instead of just grinding away. It's good to just, just, just disconnect, just, just take a little break, right? Like if it was sports, like that commercial timeout, that halftime, you know, take, take a little bit and then, you know, get back in there particularly when you're not tied to being in the, the, the traditional nine to five all the time, like mm -hmm. use the, use the time wisely. You end up, I, I personally, I find doing what you, what you just said, you become more productive 
when you do sit down and focus rather than just trying to drag stuff on for hour after hour. And, um, and for anybody who's like for themselves or any, you know, just, just work in bursts. So the um, uh, Pomodoro technique is really well. I'll do that. I'll set the Pomodoro timer on my phone for 25 minutes, 20 minutes. And then I just know it's a sprint. It's a mad dash. Just crush it for 25 minutes, then take a five minute break and then do it again. And your brain can only focus for so long. And then you start diminishing returns on your effect. Even if you're in a cubicle making calls, there's only, you can't grind 200 calls in an hour, right? You can only do so many. And then it's like, man, my brain is fried. Step back, then go back in again. Smart, smart advice. Uh, Three tools, systems, services, apps, whatever, um, that you use a lot and you couldn't live without. So one is the uh, Pomodoro. So there's a bunch of free apps there where you can download it, which is cool. You can also do one on your computer. There's various ones. Um, I have a Pomodoro um, plugin for Chrome. And what's good about that is one of the things that happens, especially, you know, most humans are the same. We get distracted or procrastinating. It's like, I know I should write this, but I don't really want to. So next thing you know, I'm on LinkedIn or I'm on, you know, the (laughs) internet. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. So we all do that, right? And, and, you know, I'll do it and say, okay, at least I'm doing business and I'm like networking working, but no, I'm just procrastinating. And so there's like Pomodoro timers that will also block all the internet that you don't want it on there. And then you're basically on timeout for 25 minutes and you have to focus. Um, There's an app called Cold Turkey that does that too on the computer where literally it blocks everything on the internet. You can't do anything and you can't override it. You can't admin password. You can't cancel it. Like you are in internet jail for 25 minutes and you've got to work. That's really good. If you're in sales in a cubicle making phone calls, do that, like cut them all out, put the phone away, like just limit, limit, limit. So those are really good. Um, also the app I mentioned earlier, which is meditations called headspace. Like it's a really cool guided one. I am not good at meditating. I do what everyone does, which my brain is spinning all over the place. They've got short ones guided, you know, exercises, and then you can just, you know, keep doing it. Um, so those are the main ones. And then what I would also say, you know, and this is kind of a different one, but I use Gmail all the time. I know most people do. One feature I didn't realize is you can snooze emails. One of the challenges with emails, you look at your inbox and you, your goal should be inbox zero, as they say. It's tough to do because you look at it and go, man, I don't want to respond. I don't have time. I don't have time. There's a snooze feature built into Gmail and some other um, emails where you can snooze it for a later time, right? So I know I've got meetings and stuff I got to do for the next three hours. I'm going to snooze it because if I go check my email and I see I have 50 emails, I'm overwhelmed, I'm stressed, and now I'm not getting anything done. If it's zero, because I know, okay, I'll deal with those at three o'clock today. I'm not worried about it or tomorrow or next Tuesday. I don't need to deal with it right now. There's a calm that happens and then I can be productive. And then when those pop back in, I can deal with them or I can snooze them. If nobody's made a big deal out of them, then obviously it's not urgent. So I still don't have to deal with it. So snooze it again game changer i'm telling you similar to uh, tim ferris has talked about this isn't he kind of like he batches his emails into you know once a day or a couple of a couple of sorry, and, a week or whatever whatever works for you so yeah it's a good idea and that's good except most people and i'll speak for myself and people i've heard who are productivity experts the the advice is only check your email once a day well, we can't right? You just can't. You want to check it. You want to see if you're missing something. Like it's tough to break that habit and go, okay, I'm in so much control. I'm going to check it once a day. No, instead check it all you want, but it should, it'll be at zero because you've snoozed it. And then like, then, cause there's this, what am I missing? This FOMO, this worry, like, is there something in my inbox I need to deal with? But if there's one email, because there's only one new one, then like, that's easy. Then deal with that one. Can I do it in less than three minutes? If not snooze, that's it. I like that idea. And the last question, if you could spend an hour with anybody dead or alive, who would it be? You know, I would say I'd probably go with something cliche, which would be Tony Robbins. Um, And I wouldn't have always said that. And I would usually be anti like this big name and this big person, but just I've seen him live and the energy and just the wisdom and then outside perspective, just because he's been at the game for so long that just the gems from that would just be like, okay, where am I met? Cause I know, I know that I'm limited in my life because of what I know, right. That we were exactly where we are because of what we know and what we do. And yeah. so that kind of outside perspective, I mean, the people that, that the fact that people pay him a million dollars a year for his individual coaching, that's where it starts. Yeah. There's probably some value there. It's probably, it's probably some good stuff. Yeah. Funny you should say that we, I did um, the first virtual UPW 
um, two weeks ago, nearly two weeks ago. And yeah, I, he's fascinating. He's a fascinating human being. I think mm. his communication skills are unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable. Yep. So yeah, I think he's a, a, fascin a very fascinating choice and definitely yeah. be on my shortlist. It's hard to pick one, isn't it? It is. Super hard. <laughs> right. We are well and truly over our time. So apologies for that. But where can people find you um, if they want to track you down? Best thing is jasoncutter.com. So it's J-S-O-N-C-U-T-T-E-R.com, just like it sounds. Um, I have made that into a hub for all of the various things I have going on. So whether you want to talk to me about consulting, there's a link to my uh, consulting website through there. Uh, you want to buy the book. I have a free ebook. I have an online course. You can book a time to, to talk to me about sales to see if it's something I can help you with, either individual coaching or cons you know consulting for a business. Like that's the best like place you can find my LinkedIn. You can find everything that I'm, I'm doing and creating is all through that one page. Perfect. Well, I'll make sure I've got links to that and to your social and stuff so people can find you when this goes out. Um, but for the time being, Jason, it's been amazing. Thank you very much for giving up your extra time. <laughs> and uh, we'll, we'll speak again soon. You're welcome. We could have kept going for sure uh, for hours and hours. So I, I appreciate this and uh, what you're doing with the podcast and you know where you're going with this. It's, it's great. And hopefully, hopefully people are getting diverse value from all your conversations. Appreciate it. Thank you. Cheers, man. Cheers.